This is an ABC podcast. Going to a restaurant these days almost always involves seeing someone photograph their food. And maybe this is something you do enjoy doing too, creating a record of your night out to share on social media. But it's having an effect on our food culture. Some restaurants are now designing their dishes, their tables, their lighting explicitly for photography, while others ask that you just put your phone away and experience the moment. Instagram has over a billion users globally. How is it changing our relationship with food? Zenia Kish is an assistant professor in media studies at the University of Tulsa and the co-editor of Food Instagram, Identity, Influence and Negotiation. I spoke to her earlier and I asked why food is such a big part of Instagram culture. It really is a strong relationship and the platform has long capitalized on the visual appeal of food and eating. There's something elemental and really deeply human about visually representing our food and where it comes from. We can see this all the way back to the earliest human cave paintings of hunting through many rich artistic traditions um, along the way. But Instagram's food obsession really descends more directly from the the rich visual traditions of food magazines, cookbooks, commercials, food TV, and food blogs. So it takes aesthetic conventions from these different media and recombines them in some interesting ways, and then also makes them much more accessible. It takes them out of the professionalized domain of those media forms, and uh, hence the reins over to everyday people to see what they want to do with it. It does Um, feel like a relatively democratic space. You know, you've got influence and celebrities posting pictures of their sandwiches just like you and me. But is it really, you know, is is the food imaging that celebrities post really within the reach of you and me? Uh, (laughs) Some might argue it's a bit of a false promise. I mean, on the one hand, uh, Instagram became so popular um, at a moment when suddenly we all had these really powerful mini computers in our hands that went everywhere with us with increasingly good Um, cameras. And you can post, you had suddenly the ability to post instantaneously to any of your connections anywhere. Um, So that gave people this individual expressive ability to show the things that you're doing every day. And Instagram really encouraged people to to do that kind of visual diary keeping. And food is something that we all do every day. Um, It's easy to document. It's very visual. Um, And we often connect positive emotions with it. We we like to share meals with other people and celebrate things with a good meal. So so there's something that that immediately tapped into those joyous connections and that visual culture. But that kind of demotic turn, what we call in, in media studies, that that um, really popular accessibility and democratization of celebrity um, also carries some dangers, um, misinformation. It, it gives much broader platforms to people who are non-experts but may want to weigh in on things like health, dieting, um, uh, things like that. So it's a great way to spread exciting new recipes or dishes that you've tried or share wonderful moments with people. But it's also a great conduit for people to build brands and sell things um, without regulation, without accountability. Well, there's also that sense that sometimes it divorces us from the actual food and the experience of food. The the freak shakes example springs to mind here. (laughs) Xenia, could you tell us a little bit about what they are? Yeah. So one of the amazing things about Instagram and what it has really done to food culture is it has almost invented um, new food culture, new um, food categories. It's it's an it's created new expectations about what food could and should look like. And so that has led to all kinds of interesting new um, creations. So, uh, so for instance, um, you mentioned freak shakes. These are a specialty of cafe, uh, cafe pâtissé, which originated in Australia, but then 
and spread through the region more broadly. And one of our contributors writes about these kind of <laughs> culinary monstrosities. They're these huge um, mason jar filling um, milkshakes with many different layers of cake and ice cream and icing. And they're very colorful and they're so over the top and they're 1500 calories and it's more than a meal. Um, and they're so popular. People came from all over and tourists were drawn to, to buying them and people were buying them to photograph as much as to eat them. People would buy them and then not consume them because they were just too much. And, and so the visual sometimes gets prioritized over the taste. Another really interesting example comes from um, our contributor, Emily Truman, who tells the story of the unicorn latte, which was a Starbucks promotional drink offered for a very short term. And it also was filled with beautiful layers and pastel colors and, and flavorings. Wasn't so tasty, people said, but they loved photographing and posting about it. So it was trending. It was really popular and successful for Starbucks. But then a little cafe in Brooklyn brought up suit against Starbucks and said, you copied our unicorn drink. And they actually won um, uh, an intellectual property infringement case by arguing not that Starbucks took their recipe. It didn't taste the same, but it looked the same. And it was both dishes were designed for the Instagram ability. And that was really their value, not the taste. Well, yes. And you you have a section in the book, too, talking about uh, whether or not food has become divorced from the labor of a meal, the, the whole food chain that comes to put it on our plate. Because for years, there's been this concern, hasn't there, that consumers and diners mm-hmm. are, are separated from the actual materiality of their food. Does Instagram make that worse? That's that's a good question. And what the research shows so far is a, a bit of both. It both opens and closes public access to the sort of behind the food behind the scenes of food origins, sometimes in some surprising ways. So on the one hand, some of the um, uh, food entrepreneurs and restaurateurs and and food influencers that are profiled in the book, they go out of their way to show the background. They show the kitchen, they show the labor, they show their hands, they show and write about in the captions. They write about how, um, for instance, they have to wait till the exact perfect time of day to get that right sunlight to capture their, um, their, their beautiful new creation in just the right way. But they also, you know, some of these feminist um, uh, restaurateurs and and, and business owners, they talk about how much work goes into getting childcare um, in order to do the work that they need to do at particular times of day, for instance, or the often grueling hours that go into these things. So so there are some uses where people are are kind of exposing and and giving new light to to that labor that we often don't see. and, uh, and and farmers are another set of people who have been using Instagram to show where our food comes from and to narrate. This is this is where your meat comes from. This is how we take care of animals, for instance, on a small family farm, um, and 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 things like that. Um, but at the same time, there is still such an emphasis on presenting that perfectly appetizing final food product or meal, that that's what gets precedence most of the time. And and so the Instagram visual ecosystem tends to continue to cut out the workers who harvest and process and transport and cook our food. Those laborers who tend to be erased not only on social media, but also in our our broader public discourse and our political sphere. Yeah, it was lovely to see a reference to my old flame, uh, Roland Bart (laughs) in the book to Xenia Kish talking about ornamental food way back mid last century. I mean, what effect does it have if restaurants are prioritizing how food looks over how it feels or tastes or smells? 
Yeah, on, on the one hand, um, this opens new opportunities for people to um, to be interested in trying new things, right? So restaurants have been um, pushed into adopting Instagram as a, a really primary platform all over in the US, not only, but all over the world um, to promote their work. And, and so that, you know, that affects tourists coming to try new things. They, they hear about some interesting new dish or, or some um, exciting new food movement. Um, so uh, one of the chapters looks at um, the rise of new Southern cuisine in, in the U.S. South and the popularity of fancy gourmet biscuit restaurants, right? So this is taking a very traditional food from the South, but giving it a, a new look and feel um, in this cosmopolitan and urbane setting um, of, of the reinvented Southern identity. So it can happen have positive effects and it can give voice to all kinds of, um, it, it opens up ways for um, food cultures and, and cooks who may not have had access to the mainstream before. It gives them an opportunity sometimes <laughs> to, to use that platform to, to self-promote and, and to expand the public tastes. And then um, in the time-honoured narrative arc of social media platforms, you see politicians tapping into this idea of yes. authenticity. Tell me how that happened with uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Right. <laughs> so that's one of my favourite parts of the book. It's so fascinating. Um, uh, uh, Sarah Garcia, one of the contributors to our book, um, highlights this case of two conservative uh, politicians, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, former president of, of Brazil, and Matteo Salvini, former prime minister and conservative opposition leader now in Italy. And they both use their Instagrams very prominently while campaigning um, to defy that popular food porn aesthetic. So they depicted themselves uh, eating kind of sloppy, messy, homemade food, some of it was really about like this is this is our traditional dish this is the local food i'm respecting the local food i don't care how it looks i'm not going to put effort into getting the right lighting or giving you beautiful plating i'm going to show you i'm a man of the people i'm not fancy i'm not pretentious um i'm i'm here interacting with everyday people i'm sitting down and having a meal with workers and so so um she talks about this as a kind of food puritanism a way to rile up perhaps a conservative base. It can help promote nationalistic ideas of belonging and inclusion, but it can also lead to, to xenophobia um, and, and different kinds of, of, um, of pretensions. Um, and that's it's a really interesting area of study. This is something that we need to, I think, um, scholars in media studies and food studies can pay more attention to how are politicians using food as props. Yes, indeed. I loved how you wrote that, you know, for a long time, academia steered clear of Instagram. It was seen as feminized <laughs> and consumerist. They seem like reasons to study it from my point of view. It's been really interesting just having a little taste. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to do that of what's going on in academia around Instagram today. Zenia Kish, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Zenia Kish is the co-author of Food Instagram, a book that's out now and an assistant professor in media studies at the University of Tulsa. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.